0: Now, before I get underway, and before I forget, I'm going to acknowledge certain groups who are fundamental to this work. And first of all, uh, on this slide, the Institute of Cancer Research, which is the scientific clinical trial end and research end of the Royal Marsden Hospital, and the clinical trials unit at the Royal Brompton Hospital, who have managed two trials which I'm going to talk about, both of them funded by Cancer Research UK, uh, and also I'm going to use data which comes from the Thames Cancer Registry, uh, which is based uh, within KCL and is, one of the, uh, is the largest cancer registry in Europe. Now, this is a rather ironic slide. You can see what it is, it's the two, two towers, and it's an advert for asbestos uh, from 1981, by which time the dangers of asbestos uh, in terms of lung disease and in particular cancer uh, were already well known and in a way, this is a sort of rear guard action uh, and they 're pointing out that asbestos is throughout the building, throughout the cement throughout just in insulation and pipe lagging and central heating and everything else and Already it was becoming known, although probably not widely known, that asbestos is the cause of a particularly nasty cancer. Uh, called mesothelioma. Now, this picture here is a combination of a CT scan, an X-ray cut vertically, and a PET scan. Now, the, um, is is there a pointer or should I, yeah. Sorry, I thought I was going to be able to use this, but it's sort of playing up. Uh, On this side, you can see the rib cage, the vertebrae. These are the shoulders, the neck, the liver, and so on. So this is a lung, and this is the lung on the healthy side. On this side, this bright light is a PET scan, which shows up an area of high metabolism, which is the cancer. And you can see it's very extensive, surrounding and encasing the lung, and that's mesothelioma. Now, this is a complicated slide that I'll take you through, uh, but it shows the relationship between asbestos and mesothelioma. Along the bottom here, you can see from 1900 up to predictions going into 2040, 45 and so on. This line, this yellow line, is the uh, amount of asbestos that people were exposed to in this period through the 1940s and up to about 1980, Uh, and the bars show the imports. So that is asbestos peaking, as a very valuable material in building, declining, and being effectively banned and highly regulated. Then following, and the lag time is over 40 years, these green spots are uh, deaths from, male deaths, and that's the majority, from mesothelioma, and the purple line is a prediction of of, uh, how that's likely to be followed. So we found ourselves uh, 15 years ago Uh, seeing that rise and knowing that we had ahead of us a lot of patients coming to us with mesothelioma. Now, I was working at Guy's Hospital at the time, and that serves communities with the highest mesothelioma rates in Great Britain. And you can see the dark blue areas around uh, the Clyde and Tyneside, which were shipbuilding areas and industrial areas, the Plymouth and Portsmouth Naval Dockyards, and that area of London where Guy's Hospital is uh, is the site of the old... Uh, docks, the commercial docks, but also the naval dockyards down the medway and those patients came to us in increasing numbers. The question for us as surgeons is what could we do about it? Can we cure mesothelioma? Well, attempts had been made by very radical operations to do this uh, in the '70s and if you look at this uh, area here. You can see that this is a very extensive, massive disease, and to clear it, uh, you have to, or the way it was done, is to remove the whole of the lung on this side, but also the membrane around the heart, which is the pericardium, the diaphragm, uh, strip off the pleura from the chest wall, and even then, uh, would you really clear it? Well, uh, initial operations were hazardous. There were high death rates. The cancer came back very quickly but it seemed later on that if it was combined with chemotherapy, uh, there were better results, and then adding in radiotherapy, people began to claim that they were able to get longer survival and maybe even cure it. Uh, And this was the sort of thing we were exposed to at the time. I would have to tell you there were reservations about this uh, in Britain, and British surgeons (coughs) didn't take it up with great enthusiasm, but elsewhere it was adopted. And we reached a situation where there were publications claiming good results, our patients wanted to know why we couldn't offer it, and were raising the money to go abroad, persuaded by this sort of highly personalized information. Well, faced with that dilemma, we wanted to know what we should do. And the first task was to seek the evidence, which we did by formal systematic review, and that was published in The Lancet in 2004. It seemed to us that these were all retrospective studies, relatively small groups of patients, selected, reported by enthusiasts, and in all cases the patients had completed their uh, various multimodality treatments, very often two or three treatments on top of each other. And we did not believe we could see evidence that the surgery was effective amongst uh, that selected uh, group of patients having multiple uh, treatments. So we argued the case for a trial, which we published in the BMJ. Now, to cut a very long and arduous story short, we'll cut to the report of that study, which came out uh, in the Lancet 2011, last year. Now, this is a standard way of displaying survival data, if you're not familiar with it. Uh, There's the passage of time along the bottom, 6 months, 12 months, 18 months, and then in percentage, the proportion of patients surviving. And this was a quite small study. There's only 50 patients in total depicted here in in two groups. So each downward notch is the death of a patient as they go from all the patients entering down here to 18 months. Now, to go back, what happened prior to this was that we saw patients who were potential candidates, not only for the surgery, but the radiotherapy and chemotherapy that had to go with this package to try and match the results uh, that were being uh, presented to us. Uh, So all the patients had chemotherapy and re-evaluation and further scans, and at this point, if they were regarded as candidates for surgery, uh, we then randomly allocated to one one of two groups. So you have two groups there of patients One group get the surgery and the other don't. Now, the important thing is that this red line are the patients who have the surgery and radiotherapy. And they do considerably worse and a difference which is significant uh, by having the treatment rather than not. Also important is that this red line, actually, when you look at it, is not dissimilar. In fact, is quite similar to the published results. The results were not that good, and within the trial, we were getting the same sort of results as were being promulgated. The important point was that we had a control group of patients who were randomly allocated to not have that operation who actually did better by not having it. So that study was published last year, and at this point, it's very important to thank colleagues, particularly at guys at other hospitals around the country, at uh, the trial team uh, at the Marsden, and also the British Thoracic Oncology Group, which brings together all the cancer specialists who deal with cancer of the chest, mainly lung cancer, but also this sort of cancer, who awarded us the Lifetime Achievement Award only last week, which for us is hugely appreciative from our own colleagues, because this was an extremely difficult study. Published in the same year was this book by Lionel Shriver, now, Lionel Shriver uh, wrote We Need to Talk About Kevin. And if you've not read that, heard about it, or seen the film, y- you should, it's fascinating. But she's also written this book, which is about mesothelioma. And it's based on truth in that a friend of hers had mesothelioma, n- not in the lung, but in the abdomen, but the principles are really very much the same. And in the same week or so, her husband decides to, uh, and you this is no secret, this is all on all the, all the blurb, so I won't be spoiling the story for you, to cash in his lifetime saving from his business of a million dollars to use it in a more or less altruistic form of retirement, and they get the news that she has mesothelioma. So they spend the next year with the bank balance being eaten away, and towards the end, the last consultation with the doctor goes like this, uh, and her husband says, so what exactly did we buy? How much time? The doctor says, oh, I bet we've probably extended her life a good three months. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Dr. Goldman, they were not a good three months. And the point being made is that the quality of life for this patient in that last year of her life was not at all good. And nor is it for many patients who have complex multimodality treatment. Now, of course, if they are young and in their teens or their 20s with lymphoma or leukemia and they have a terrible year that live for another 50 years, That's not a bad deal. But these are older patients, and we're very concerned about it. And you might wonder, how can a novelist put a finger on it when the doctors can't? Well, of course, novelists make things up, and she happens, I think, to be right about this one. But they're not always right. But she did happen to get this one uh, well-identified. So why don't the doctors know? Well, maybe they're just too close up to it. They're seeing a group of patients uh, who... They've looked after and they report the ones where they completed treatment, things went well, they send in a report to the literature. What they don't tell us about and indeed probably can't because the records aren't kept in that way to be accessed retrospectively, patients who uh, they thought they might make a start on this treatment but fell by the wayside for one reason or another the cancer progressed on chemotherapy or the patient didn't want it and so on. So we don't know what happens to those patients. They certainly never tell us in cohort studies about all the other patients being considered by the cancer committees, the tumour boards, who were potentially candidates for this surgery. And none of them know what the overall burden of the disease is in the population and how this group of patients fit in and to what extent they're representative. By now, you'll recognize that this is Anthony Gormley's work, Field, and each of these figures is a little clay figure. They're all the same in that they're made by clay and molded in the hands of his team and have eyes that look at you and so on, but they're all different, and that's one of the problems of clinical medicine. Well, now, moving on from mesothelioma to cancer of the colon, which is much more common Mesothelioma causes a couple of thousand deaths a year. Cancer of the colon, the 40,000 patients in the year. And many of you will know patients that have these common cancers. The three common ones are lung, breast, and colon. So the colon, the large bowel, large intestine, uh, a cancer which develops there is a serious matter. A miserable time, perhaps, with uh, constipation and diarrhea and eventually maybe obstruction, the cancer uh, may block off the bowel completely. It may erode into other organs, and nasty leakages and fistulas occur, uh, and terrible peritonitis. So you would want a surgeon to deal with that for you and overcome that immediate problem. And highly successful, very specialized surgeons deal with that, and about half of patients uh, with carcinoma of the colon are cured. But in the other half, uh, the disease comes back or there are uh, secondary deposits, particularly in the liver and the lung, uh, which cause further trouble. Now, um, the question here in this much commoner cancer is, does further, again a matter of advanced aggressive surgery, to remove the secondary cancer in the lung give any benefit? Now, so that you can keep up in case it's a completely new word to you, metastasis is the name for a secondary deposit of cancer, and hence, metastasectomy is the operation to remove it. You'll see that coming up. Again, we needed to seek the evidence. And here, I should give acknowledgement to the electronic library here, which when you're doing this sort of searching work is just fantastic, and being able to look up the world's literature anywhere I happen to be in the world pretty well. Don't have to be at my desk here. But also the Royal Society of Medicine, because some of the uh, things we need to look up uh, have been published a long time ago uh, and are in rarely uh, uh, read journals down in the basement. So acknowledgement to those. Now, this picture, this tangled web, is a citation network analysis. And, uh, in fact, Christos, uh, who's here in the audience, uh, helped, helped us with this and made this picture. All around the edge, all those circles with numbers in, in them are published papers, and there's a total of 72 of them. They are all examples of follow-up studies of removal of lung metastasis, uh, uh, in, with intent to complete cure of a colon cancer. The lines between them are citations. So, uh, in any scientific or medical paper, as many of you will know, uh, that at the end of the paper will be a list of 10, 15, 20, 30 articles, other articles, to which the authors refer. So, what you can see here is these are all reporting the same thing over this period of 1971 to 2007, very similar reports, and they're all quoting each other. It's a sort of frenzy of mutual citation. And this is really quite typical of what happens because there is freedom uh, for the authors to quote what they want to quote, and they will, of course, quote things that support their view. But out on the edge here, uh, there are these four, which are papers who don't agree with them, but they don't get much of a look in. Now, here's one, for example, Um, and this was written by this man, Torkel Arberg, in 1980, and he asks, is this effect fact or fiction? Because, he says, it's been assumed in in all these papers, assumed, implied, or claimed, that were it not for the operation, survival would be nil. And he says, well, is that true? would some of these patients have survived? Is it as extreme as, as that, that they're all cured, the ones who survive are cured by it? Now, he's a, a, a mainstream surgeon, a cardiothoracic surgeon himself, uh, worked in Uppsala, and was the secretary for years of our European Association, and he was the president before me, so I know him very well, and he wrote this a long time ago. So we took that question and we had a look at it, and this is work done by Coro, particularly by Martin Utley, Now, here again, you've got one of these graphs. And uh, the purple line is of patients with colorectal cancer who, at the time of presentation, have metastases, and that is their survival um, uh, in data from the Thames Cancer Registry. And there at 60 months or five years is the typical time when people report survival data. Five-year survival data is a pretty typical number to give for cancers, and it's 40%. Well, first of all, it isn't zero. It happens to be 10% at five years, going down to about 5% later. But still, this would be a good gain if it were all attributable to the surgery. But there are a couple of problems with that comparison. In that uh, network analysis that we did, we did a formal systematic review of 51 reports from which we could get data, 3,500 patients, and... Overall, fairly consistent message, but 40% survival at five years. But the patients didn't have their operation at the same time as the colon cancer. On average, it was three years later. So, in fact, that steep declining part of the curve is to some extent irrelevant in this comparison because to enter this group of patients with a 40% survival, they have on average already been free from dying. Uh, for three years. So the bit of the curve that's more relevant is that flatter bit, but there's a bit more to it than that. Um, Those purple line patients are ones who had metastases right at the outset, but most patients who have this surgery looked as though they were cured at the beginning, and the metastases come back later. Now, the stages, the blue line are patients with the least severe invasive cancer at the time of operation, and on down, ones that go through the wall of the bowel, ones that are tending to spread out into the tissues, and only the ones in the purple line already have spread. So if you now make a comparison, uh, taking a a group of patients which are similar in that respect to the ones in the series, it looks rather different. So now you reset to zero, and that's the shape of the curve. Now, they're similar in only two respects, that there has been an interval before the metastasectomy was performed, and they have the same sort of mixture of severity of the primary cancer. They may be different in many other ways, uh, but it certainly gives you a very different picture of the comparison, which is implicit in those 72 papers which I showed you, and goes largely unquestioned. Martin and his co-workers doing that with us looked at two papers for this, and they're big populations of patients, both about 150. They both had this 40% five-year survival, um, one from uh, America and the other one from Japan, and published in the time when there was this great flurry of activity in this form of surgery during the 1990s. And for both of them, if you look at a group of patients from the Thames Cancer Registry who resemble them at least in those two respects. Uh, quite a lot more uh, are alive than the nil which is assumed. So we have a problem uh, how to find out what might have happened to these selected patients within these studies who appear to do well if they had not been operated on, uh, very much as I showed you for mesothelioma where we've actually done that study. Now. The question is, is this survival rate, are they attributable to surgery? Did the surgery cause them to be alive, or were there features of those selected for surgery? It's the selection for surgery, which is the effect. Now, there are two favourable features which we're able to get out of those papers. Uh, The number of metastases, and usually the paper will say whether there was just one, three, eight, many, usually one, two, and three. That's the typical sort of thing and they will also know the interval, and in study after study, favourable features of fewer metastases and a longer interval. Now, this is a way of thinking about that, a form of thought experiment. And here, there are 300 little people, of whom uh, 25 are green, and that would, uh, that's 5% and they are, say, natural survivors who would come out of the Thames Cancer Registry and be alive, and they're scattered in amongst them. But now we've done a bit of sorting out. Um, Those down on the bottom have many metastases and then upwards, single metastases, and along the other direction, they go from very short intervals to longer intervals. This is just made up, just a way of thinking about it. But that's exactly what you do, because these are the features on which patients are selected for this form of surgery. Well, if you then operate on the ones in the top corner, which is about 8%, in reality, the number of patients selected are less than that. They're down around 5 4%. So this is sort of being generous. But just supposing um, 10 of those 15 natural survivors are amongst the 25 that you have selected for surgery, you would get your 40%. So, our view of this is that without doing a randomized trial, we won't know. That's the cover of a rather nice book, which is for those who are, not, are interested but not uh, experts in, in, in medical research, spells out the issues to do with testing treatment. And there are a group of doctors, an and ex-editor of the Lancet, and so on, who, who've produced this nice book. On the other side, you see the problems are these, that the cancers are highly variable. The cancers don't be- behave in a consistent way. Some are extremely indolent, and some are very aggressive. Also, the treatments are not consistent. The treatment is sort of responds to the patient or the point of view of the doctor, and very often there are multiple treatments. And out of all that variation, it's difficult for an individual doctor to see the signal from the noise. And that's the argument for having a randomized trial. And we're running one. It started. It's called the Pulmic Trial, and that's for pulmonary metastasectomy and colorectal cancer. And you can see why we go for these nifty little algorithms like Pulmic. But my title had the limits set by nature. And this is where the phrase comes from. This is a lovely book given to me some time ago as, as a present. And uh, from Arthur Holman, who was a cardiologist in this hospital, maybe somebody even knows him. 1896, he wrote this Surgery of the heart has probably reached the limit set by nature to all surgery. No new method and no new discovery can overcome the natural difficulties which it presents. And it's a favorite quotation uh, which heart surgeons and I'm a heart surgeon as well as a thoracic surgeon, um, put up at the beginning of their lecture and say, Whoa, see? See how good we are? That's what they thought. I put it up as a little memento mori. He was wrong. A Very good man, but he was wrong. I could be just as wrong. So when I tell you that I think there are limits set by nature, it may not be true. Maybe surgeons of the future will be able to do things I can't do. I don't think so, otherwise I wouldn't be giving you this lecture. But one always has to have this element of uncertainty about whether we really know it all. Presenting this in, in the department where there are f- physicists around, they fished out this, didn't know about this. Albert Abraham Michelson in 1903, much at the same time, said the most important fundamental laws and facts of physical science have all been discovered. And these are now so firmly established that the possibility of their ever being supplemented in consequence of new discoveries is exceedingly remote. I wonder if they know about that in CERN. But anyway, so it's not just doctors, it's other people as well have this impression that where we are now is the right place to be. We've got it all sorted out. What more do we need to know? So my conclusions for you are that the history of medicine includes many retreats. And it isn't just because people find a better treatment it's quite often because they realize eventually, maybe after hundreds of years, that the things they are doing are not only not helpful, but actually harmful. And I think the surgery for mesothelioma, which I've shown you, fits into that category. Also, doing more, wanting to be seen to be active, may not be better than doing less. There are times to just back off and do less. Very, very hard, and that's hard for... uh, patients and for doctors uh, to to face. But with secure knowledge, you can at least give a a firm view that less is better than more. And also the questions become more and more complicated. There are things uh, in in medicine which are very clear cut. If you have a cataract and a skilled eye surgeon operates on you, you can see. Uh, If you have an extremely arthritic hip and a good orthopaedic surgeon looks after you, you can walk. But when you've got diseases of very varying progression uh, and with multiple treatments, it's much uh, more difficult to see that. And just because questions are complicated doesn't mean we should give up or, or we'll try to make it up as we go along. We need plain answers, and that's why some of these trials are actually very simple. They're pragmatic trials. We'll do this and we'll do that, and the decision will be made at random. So finally, thanks to many colleagues uh, who've contributed to these studies and to many colleagues who haven't necessarily agreed with me as I've gone along debating these things, because the process of arguing to and fro helps clarify what the real issues are, so I'm grateful to them too. But also to many past, present and future patients willing to be treated within trials. And we're grateful to them, But Also, I think it's worth noting that there should be some sense of duty in that because the good treatments that we give now rely on patients previously who were willing to go into studies. To have studies for the future relies on people to willingly go into studies now. And, of course, they should be protected by good regulation and good science and not reckless experimentation. But without people being in studies now, we will not know for the future. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Professor Treasurer. I think we have time for a couple of questions, if there are any in the audience. There's a microphone coming your way. There's a microphone coming, yes. I, I can hear you, but it's so that the it's recorded and so
1: on. Have you ever done any research as to whether surgery without chemotherapy and radiotherapy are successful?
0: Oh, oh yes. Um, not personally, but... Uh, Surgery for cancer uh, was practiced a long time before it was ever combined with with, uh, chemotherapy and, and radiotherapy. And if you have a cancer which is located in one place, in my case it's lung cancer, and it's well within the lung, hasn't yet spread through the blood or the lymphatics, and you take out that portion of the lung, you can cure the cancer completely. And that certainly, well, for, for many cases of colon cancer. Now, chemotherapy uh, goes in the bloodstream, it goes everywhere, so it is a means of tackling uh, cancer which is disseminated, which is quite beyond the reach of a surgeon. It's microscopic and it's everywhere. Increasingly, the two are put together in combinations, uh, and those combinations have to be studied in randomized trials, or you can't see the wood for the trees. So, so yes, isolated surgery has been studied and known to be effective. The combinations must be. Not as often as some of us would like to see have those combinations been tested properly, but but the straight answer is yes, they have been.
1: Um, Do you think that meat and the consumption of meat contributes to the acquisition of cancer, because um, I've noticed that vegetarians, when they sort of get older, they don't seem to get um, any or as many incidents. And and eating fruit and vegetables isn't just a sort of merry line, but uh, contributes to good health and exercise.
0: I I can't give you a clear answer to that. the best understanding of cancers are, just as I showed you, asbestos and mesothelioma are linked, but so is smoking. If you could extract the data, you could show the same. So smoking is clearly pro-cancer. Now, there's a great deal of interest in, in, uh, in, in nourishment and which foods are favorable. There seem to be very compelling reasons uh, to make sure we have adequate vegetables, have adequate roughage, and so on. But I don't think there's a simple cause and effect Uh, uh, But I I don't know. It's not my area, but it's certainly not a clear one. Certainly, do you
1: think um, exercise, for instance, daily exercise, like certainly sort of daily exercise and swimming and all that sort of thing on a daily basis, that must help keep the body uh, exempt from such things?
0: Well, I think it keeps the body fit, but there's, there's no... Real reason to think it spares them cancer. I think it's quite important to not be one of the things that goes that I don't like to see with cancer patients is a sort of you brought it on yourself attitude. If you had only done this or you'd only done that, this wouldn't have happened. I don't think that's very fair. <laughs> I think you, because I don't think it's even it's fair, even if they even even if you. Uh, don't think they've lived very healthily, you still look after them. So it's not an area where, where I think it's useful in the care of patients. No, but I was thinking
1: more, um, was thinking more of people conducting their lives to... Oh, well, I agree.
0: Yes, yeah. yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We should all lead better lives and stay fit. No, I, it's not, I don't disagree with the sentiment at all, but the scientific point is there a proven link. N- not that I'm really aware of, and I think I know... I think these are probably very wise words to end on, <laughs> if you agree with me. Um, thank you very much all for being here today and join me in thanking Professor Treasure again for a great talk.